Hashem, 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 very good to be back. Uh, we are in Shior 103 in the Musar Pirkei Avot series. Uh, but this is the third Shior, I believe the third Shior, fourth Shior, uh, of the same exact Mishnah. This Mishnah is so dense, there's so much to say that... Uh, each one of the sentences, you can cover it for a lifetime, just to understand what it means. Today, Bezat Hashem, the shiur will be for Refua Shlema, for Levana Bat Sarah, Sarah Bat Levana, Rav Ephraim Ben Shlomit, David Ben Nesriya, Doris Bat Jora, Elisheva, Chaya Bat Sarah, Dvora Bat Mercedes, the rest of Am Yisrael are healthy. All and whoever isn't, Bezot Hashem will have refuah shlema, refuah tanefesh, refuah taguf. The world today is a Baruch Hashem getting more and more hectic. Every day there's some more news of things that are happening, and you're literally seeing. The nevuot, the prophecies of the uh, of, of our sages, the prophecies of the actual prophets in the Tanakh, coming true. One of them is in one of the midrashim that's been a uh, nevuah that uh, has been talked about for at least the last twenty years, which is that the milchemet gogu magog is going to start when the melech mi uh, mi. Um, uh, Miparas, mi, uh, Iran, is going to cause some trouble. The king of uh, Iran is going to cause some trouble. And everyone's seeing already that Iran has been causing trouble for some time, but they've been getting away with it. But apparently recent news uh, showed that uh, the world is uh, starting to get sick of them. At least that's what it seems like. Uh, after Israel and their special mission came out and uh, pretty much infiltrated their system and stole 100,000 pages of, of documents proving that they've been lying to everyone about the nuclear deal. And uh, the United States knows it, meaning they know it now after they saw it, and, uh, but it's only been announced to the public over these last uh, couple of days, but the United States has been working together with Israel for at least the last couple of months. Uh, now, the significance of this is that this could very well be the trigger for the next war. This could be very well be the trigger for the war, but not necessarily starting with what you would think is logical, which is that the U.S. should attack them tomorrow. Technically, you've been lying to us. You took $100 billion of our money, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, technically, you should attack them tomorrow, but they're not going to do it. But there are two other possible candidates that may pull the trigger, which one of them uh, being Saudi Arabia, because they've always been looking for an excuse to attack them. The other one is actually Israel. And the reason why is because they're right now, based on the current information, their lives are in danger. If Iran had a bomb right now, they would press the button without stopping. They would press it, they would press it until they break the button. So Baruch Hashem, they don't have it. But nonetheless, they're lying to the world and they're still developing it. The question is, how long is the government of Israel going to uh, 
let them continue before they do something. And I think that now they did something very clever and they pretty much proved that the whole world has been fooled, or at least anyone that's claiming to believe with our story. So Milchemet Gogumagog that I already told you guys technically already started quietly almost two years ago uh, is continuing to develop. When Russia moved their submarines full of 200 or more, 200 plus atomic bombs closer to the U.S. and the relationship between Russia and the United States continued to deteriorate already a couple of years ago. You already saw that everyone is mamash, looking to pull the trigger. So just like any other major war in history, the wars usually start quietly. They start with politics. Sometimes there's a few murders. Sometimes there's a few shots, but it's not a big war. It seems like this one is developing faster because it, uh, it seems like we're running out of time to do tshuva because Hashem is trying to make us realize that one way or another you will serve me. That's what he says to the prophet Ezekiel, one way or another you will serve me. Whether you serve me because it's your own will, you do tshuva, you come to Eshu, you go to a seminar, you watch a video on YouTube, whatever it is is going to cause you to do tshuva, or I'm going to force you. How does a person, how do, how does a person get forced to do tshuva? Very simple. Hashem gives him tzarot. Hashem gives him problems. A lot of problems. Oh, Hashem, He gave us a lot of problems. This is one thing I'm an expert in. I know a lot about problems. So, the good news is, is that the problems are for your own benefit. But unfortunately, sometimes a person is so, you know, glued to his own way, to his own life, to his own system, to his own ideas, that even if Hashem gives him mamash a holocaust, Hashem Rachem, he's still not going to do tshuva. And that's why the Chachamim say in the Gemara, Reshaim, even at Petach Geinom, even at the gate of Geinom, still don't do tshuva. In Geinom, everybody does tshuva. But at the gate, until then, he's still claiming he's right. He's still claiming, no, no, I was okay, I was okay. I only drove to Shul on Shabbat, not, not nowhere else. People justify themselves, justify their actions. So, on one end, we see that this is going on. Another end in the religious world, we see that there's a lot of confusion uh, and it seems like it's continuing to grow. Uh, just on uh, Sunday, uh, I don't know whether to laugh or to cry about this stuff, but uh, it has to be said. It has to be said because the Chachamim told us in the Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin, Rabbi Eliezer ben Holkonos, said that the uh, Mashiach is not going to come for a generation either a fully righteous or fully wicked. So Chamim says it's not possible for everyone to be fully righteous or fully wicked. There's always going to be some of something. Meaning there's always going to be some righteous and some wicked. So what does it mean? It means that when, by the time Mashiach arrives, everyone is going to have had to make the choice. What's kasher and what's tameh? What's allowed, what's not allowed? Who's kosher, who's not kosher? Everyone's going to have to make a choice. Now, the most popular um, religious movement, if you can call it that, or Hasidut, in Israel today, in Am Yisrael today, is Chabad. There are others, there's Breslev, there's uh, many, many other uh, different smaller Hasiduts. And many people always ask me questions, what do I think of this Chabad rabbi, or this Chabad rabbi, or this, this, or this... 
in general, if you look at Chabad and the original founders of Chabad, Baruch Hashem, they were tzaddikim, they were kedushim. You look at the Lubavitcher Rebbe, was Ish Kodesh, Hagirat Shemaim, Torah, Torah Emet. You look at the Tzemach Tzedek. You look at the Baal Atanya. You look at the uh, look at Chabad and the founders. Rabbi Zilber wrote the book uh, to remain a Jew. You see what these people did in their lives to sacrifice for Hashem, Baal Hashem, people like this, you're surprised Mashiach didn't come already. But then you see horrible stories in the news in different places, this guy did this, this guy did that, all of these terrible things, and sometimes people say, oh yeah, but this guy was a Chabadnik, how come he did this, this, and this? So the simple answer we talked about several months ago is worth repeating. Anytime you see anyone, any Jew, with a kippah and a beard on and a suit and all the, you know, he looks like the typical religious Jew, at least today, typical religious Jew. And right next to his picture is a horrible, horrible headline. Don't connect him with the Hasidut. Because it's not necessarily the Hasidut, it's him. He says he's part of Chabad. He said he's part of Breslev. He said he's part of something. But a lot of people say a lot of things. Doesn't mean it's true. Some people wear a costume once a year on Purim. Some people wear a costume all year round. Some people have Yetzirah for wasting seed, for going with married women, for violating Shabbat with all types of ways. Some people have Yetzirah for Hashem Echem, things that uh, even an animal knows it's not right, not right. But unfortunately, to identify the ones that are bad, if, you, if it's after the headline, is already too late person needs to know what to stay away from even if it's not obviously bad meaning even if it's not necessarily hurting people you still need to understand what to stay away from and this is what we've been learning in this Mishnah over the last few uh, Shurim is that there are certain things that happen in the world that cause problems for everyone there's certain sins that a Jew can make that are not only going to affect him, but they're going to affect his neighbor. They're going to affect the people that he doesn't know that are in Africa, that are in Netherlands, that are in, uh, you know, in, in Australia, in England, all over the place, even if they're not directly connected to it. Meaning that a person can make a sin in the middle of America and Hashem will deliver the punishment somewhere else. And this is what we've been learning through this Mishnah. This is the reason why. It's a, uh, it's a deep Mishnah because it's, first of all, politically incorrect to talk about punishment in today's world. People don't like to talk about punishment. Uh, and second of all, more importantly, it's the opposite of our reality. To say that I'm going to do something, chash v'shalom, and then someone else is going to suffer from it, doesn't means that somebody else is running the world in a non-humane way, meaning it's divine. It's not something that's logical to us. It's not rational. But as we've learned over these last couple of shurim, there's a reason for everything. There's no suffering without sin according to the Torah. Now, the Mishnah says the following. We'll read the whole Mishnah and then we'll go over to the parts that we, uh, we haven't covered. Says, 
בעל העולם על שבועת שווא ועל חילול השם, גלות בעל העולם על עובדי עבודה זרה ועל גילוי עריות ועל שפיכות דמים ועל שמיטת הארץ. Translation. Pestilence comes to the world for death penalties prescribed by the Torah that were not carried out by the court. Meaning that according to the Torah in the days of the Sanhedrin, there was supposed, someone was supposed to get the death penalty. He drove on Shabbat. He, uh, he gathered the wood and carried it from private to public area without any roof. He got warnings, he didn't follow it, and that's why the Gemara says that Hashem had Moshe Rabbeinu and Am Yisrael kill him. It's the first Mechalei Shabbat in history. Anyone that violated Shabbat had, or any other sin, murder, or, uh, or any other sin that uh, required death penalty, once the judgment was made according to the Torah, the penalty has to be delivered immediately. There's no, he's going to stay in prison for six years, until the electric chair heats up enough. He's going to sit in prison for 20 years until, uh, I don't know, Mashiach maybe comes to save him. You know, people today, in today's democracy, they kill, they murder, they do all these types of things, and then they throw them in a prison cell that's costing taxpayers fifty to $80,000 a year per prisoner, per prisoner, to go and they get, let them sit there for five years, ten years, twenty years, meaning there's death row. Death row meaning they're all going to die at some point. The judgment has already been made. They're all going to die. We're just not going to kill them now. Why? There's really no rational reason for it. There's no real reason for it. So while they're waiting, the taxpayers are going to pay $70,000, $80,000 a year to keep this guy alive. The guy that raped and killed and did all types of horrible things that technically should you know, be logical to anybody else to agree that he has lost his right to live. He's a danger to society. But the democratic system that's against the Torah allows these people to live, and not only that, you pay them. So the Torah says this is not only against the Torah because it's not, it's against the people, but it's actually also against the Torah because it's against the prisoner himself, the criminal himself. Why it's against the criminal himself? Because if the person knows that he's going to die, but you don't tell him when, then technically, if, he's, if he has some type of sanity in his head, he's suffering every second, not knowing when's the last day. He doesn't know when's the last day. Why are you letting him suffer? He's suffering already enough, meaning he made a, he made a crime. Okay, there's a punishment for the crime. That's it, punish him. Now that you're letting him live longer with an unknown amount, you're adding to his suffering. Meaning that Torah even has remorse for the murderer. This is one of the many proofs that we see that Torah came from God and not from a human being, because a human being would never make such a thing. The next it says that illegal use of fruits of the seventh, uh, the sabbatical year Meaning when people, instead of following the laws of Shemitah in Eretz Yisrael, they do not give the food out. Hashem brings pestilence to the world. Meaning you did not follow the rules of the Torah, everyone has to suffer. Why? Because kol Yisrael arevim The next thing it says is sword, meaning a war, comes to the world. Why? This we talked about last week and last, the last shiur. A war comes to the world for what? For the delay of justice. 
What is a delay of justice? Meaning you've decided that the guy, he's violated Hashem's name, Chilul Hashem, worshipped an idol, did something, there's a death penalty of some kind. And you say, you know what? I'm not going let, let's to, just, let's just talk about this next week. Yeah, but you already know he's a criminal now. Why are you delaying this whole process? Let's postpone it because the lawyer is busy. He's on vacation now. This is, by the way, how the justice system that's not, according to the Torah, gets manipulated all the time. That the lawyers fight a, in order for them to, in one way, to earn more money and another way to get their clients more time. They postpone the cases and they convince each other's side to adjourn and adjourn and adjourn and adjourn. And a case that should be decided in 20 minutes, it's a 20-year case. The guy has been guilty for 20 years, but we adjourned it. We got him time for five years, for six years, for eight years, for 10 years, and so on. So delaying justice brings war to the world. Another thing is perversion of justice, meaning you're changing the law. You decided that because there's a, let's say, for example, a legal battle between a rich guy and a poor guy, and you decided, listen, according to the proof, according to the evidence, the rich guy's right. The rich guy's right. The poor guy owes him a thousand dollars. But the poor guy doesn't have any money, me skin. You feel bad for him. You want to be a nice guy. You're the judge. You want to be a nice guy. Say, so listen, the rich guy's a billionaire. What is he gonna benefit out of the thousand dollars the poor guy's gonna give him? Poor guy doesn't have any money to eat. You know what? I'll do the opposite. Not only I'm not gonna follow justice and not make the poor guy pay the rich guy, but on top of it, I'll make the rich guy give him a few dollars because it's not gonna hurt him anyway. He's got a billion, now he has 999,999,000, and it's fine, no big deal. You've perverted justice. Perverted justice, perversion of justice brings war to the world. It's not just war to a person's house, shlombait problems, kid problems, but mamash, mamash, according to our Torah, brings war to the world. Why? Because you're manipulating the Torah. Once you manipulate the Torah, Hashem wants to destroy the world. Abimi Balanes, his, uh, his Ilula was just a couple of days ago, had a uh, very famous, many very famous uh, statements, and he w- actually said to uh, his, his son, who was a scribe, Abimi Balanes himself was a scribe, wrote Sifre Torah, and he told his son, be careful when you're writing the Sefer Torah, because one mistake can destroy the world. What do you mean one mistake can destroy the world? Okay, so you wrote, you have 305,800 letters. 304,800 letters. It's a lot of letters. You make one mistake, you forgot. The Yud, sometimes the, you know, the Yud looks like a Vav, just a small Vav. So sometimes if you're not careful enough, the Yud, the ink can bleed, and now it looks like a Vav. That's a mistake. It's a tiny mistake. It's a microscopic mistake. Rabbi Balanes tells his son, you make this mistake, you can destroy the world. Destroy the world? You're a little machmir. Too much, no? Relax, okay, I made a mistake. No, you destroy the world. Why? First of all, that Sefer Torah is pasul. You're not allowed to read from it. You're not allowed, it's not considered kadosh at all. If a Sefer Torah that's kadosh falls on the floor, chas v'shalom, Everybody that sees it, everybody that's in the building must fast. But if a Sefer Torah that's pasul falls or even burns, you don't have to do anything. That's the, that's, you're talking about 
worlds apart, meaning you made a mistake. Everybody knows there's a missing letter. Not even a mistake. There's a missing letter in one of the words intentionally because they transferred it from Israel. They wrote a Sefer Torah in El Israel and they're shipping it to America or somewhere else. And they shipped it via UPS. Now, UPS is not that. It doesn't have somebody holding the Sefer Torah like this and with the whole uh, minyan following him. They put it in a box and they push into the plane. Into the plane. And they're not worried. Why? Am Yisrael knows that when they're sending the Sefer Torah, they're not, it's not a complete Sefer Torah. There's a few letters missing, intentionally missing. So until it's complete, it's not considered Kadosh. It's not considered a Sefer Torah. Okay, so now we understand it's not Kadosh. Fine, but still you have to have respect for it, no? Rabbi Meir says, if you made a mistake in it, you're destroying worlds. Why are you destroying worlds? Because the Hebrew language, unlike any other language in the world, the Sfata Kodesh has significant changes that can happen with even a simple dot. It can change up the entire word. A letter can change the entire world. So for example, if let's say there's a verse in the Torah that says, Hashem Emet, his, his signature, Hashem, his signature is Emet, truth. That's his signature, meaning he cannot change the truth. This is why anyone that thinks that Hashem is going to be a Mevatel, He's just going to let go of his sins. He's just going to, he's going to make all the sins he wants. And Hashem is going to just let it go because he's a nice guy, because he's a funny guy, because he gave a lot of tzedakah. So we're just going to let it go. The Gemara in Maseret Bava Kama, page 50a, says, Kol haomer ha-kadosh baruch hu mevater, mevaterim me'amav. They, mamash, they give him an extra punishment in Shemaim where they, Hashem and what they do to his intestines. You guys can understand what I'm, what I'm trying to imply here. Why? Because to say that Hashem is mevater, that He's just going to let you be a poshea, let you be a violator of Shabbat, let you go with a married woman, let you waste seed, let you take all the sins in the Torah, do whatever you want, He's just going to let it go. That means that Hashem is chas v'shalom, chas v'shalom, shakran, He's a liar. He lied to Moshe, to Aaron, to Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, the tzaddikim. The whole Torah is a lie. Why? Because he let one guy go. No, it's not. This is such a thing that you cannot even. If it wasn't for the for the for the purpose of the shul, you're not even allowed to think such things. To think it, you're not allowed. So now, if there's a verse in the Torah that says Hashem emet, Hashem is the truth, and you make one mistake, the tzofel makes a mistake, and the word emet. He forgot to put one of the letters. Which letter? He forgot the first letter. How many times did you write a letter to somebody? And you forgot a letter. You misspelled the word. That's, we have spell check today. Usually people don't misspell anymore. You know, but realistically, there's always, a, if you write something long, I know anytime we write an article or a paper or something like that, there's always spelling errors. You make spelling errors, it happens. You type fast, you're not thinking, whatever it happens. So this one just wrote, the Sofer wrote 304,805 letters. He made one mistake. One letter. The whole thing, it's pretty good. He forgot the Aleph. So what happens now to the word? It turns from Hashem Emet to now Emet spells out what? Mit. Instead of truth, now it means death. Hashem Echem means God died. This is Kfira. This is heresy. This is craziness. But this is the significance of a single letter in the Torah that Rabbi Meir Balanes was trying to tell us 
that you could literally destroy worlds because somebody that doesn't know anything, he reads such a verse, says, oh, okay, so I don't do anything anymore. So perversion of justice is changing the rules to apply to your likings brings war to the world. Rendering decisions contrary to halakha. Somebody asks you, can I drive on Shabbat? No, you can't drive on Shabbat. It's considered fire. And according to one of my students, who's an engineer. Every time you drive a car on Shabbat or any other day, just to drive a, from your house to, let's say, I don't know, a minute. It all depends on the, uh, how fast you're going and how many uh, RPMs are going. The average car is lighting between three to 5,000 fires in between traffic lights. From traffic light to traffic light. Three to 5,000 fires. Not one fire. It's three to 5,000 fires. That's how many times the fire inside the engine is lit, according to the student that's an engineer. Meaning that you're not violating Shabbat one time driving to shul or to wherever you're going. You're violating Shabbat, if it's a 15, 20-minute drive, you could be violating Shabbat 100, 200,000 times. How do you do tshuva for such a thing? So, the answer is, you get other people to do tshuva. But the point is, is that people, sometimes they go to a rabbi. I had a, in the beginning, when I first started doing kiruv in, uh, in Florida, somebody invited me to do a shiur in a certain bet knesset. We're not going to mention the name. But for the purpose of toilet, for the purpose of, of learning where we're at in this generation, of how each one of us is responsible to double-check everything, including what I said, including what any rabbi said, before you decide to do it. I gave a shiur, and uh, in the shiur I said some similar things, that you're not allowed to drive on Shabbat. And uh, one of the people in the shiur raises his hand and goes, wait a minute, wait, hold on a second, before you continue, can you uh, just explain... As far as the whole driving on Shabbat, it's allowed. He's telling, he's, he's asking, but telling me at the same time. He goes, it's allowed as long as I'm driving to Bet Knesset, right, to the shul. I look at him and I said, no, absolutely not. It doesn't matter where you're driving unless it's the hospital and you're trying to save somebody's life. But if you're driving to shul to go pray, no. He goes, no, no. He goes, he thought I didn't understand. He says, no, no, hold on a second. I'm driving to shul to go pray because if the shul is far from my house and I can't drive, I'm not going to go. I said, well, there's ten commandments. And the fourth commandment is keep Shabbat. There's no other commandment that says drive to shul. There's no commandment that says you have to go to shul bichlal. As a matter of fact, it's not even halacha. You don't have to go to shul. You should. There's a, there's a, there's a ma'ala in it. There's a significance in it. But there's no permission in a Torah for you to drive to shul. Under no condition. Unless you're saving a life. Meaning, you're driving somebody to the hospital. Then it's a mitzvah. So he's looking at another guy across from him, an older guy. So the other guy's like, wait, hold on a second. What if your rabbi told you that it's okay to drive to shul? And I'm starting to see there's something wrong here because they're looking at each other and they're waiting for my answer because they're also looking at the rabbi. Which rabbi? The one that invited me there. So I said, I don't know who told you such a thing, but he's clearly wrong because it's against the Torah. So then the rabbi was like, listen, guys, let's move on. I'll explain to you guys another time. Maybe the rabbi doesn't understand. We have a certain kiruv strategy. We have a certain way of doing things. 
So I understood, I put two and two together, Baruch Hashem, I realized he's the rabbi, Shem Rachem. So after we finished the shiur, I continued with the shiur. I didn't want to make a big deal out of it and ruin the whole thing. I just continuing the shiur, but I knew I have a mission here. What? After we finish, rabbi's going to go wherever he's going to go. I'm going to go to these two people. So after the shiur finished, I went to these two people. I said, listen, I don't know what he said, who said, and what said. All I can tell you is you want sources, I brought you sources. You want more sources, I'll give you every source you want. Anyone that tells you to drive on Shabbat, unless it's in the hospital, is 100% lying to you. And there's no permission whatsoever. If they're doing it, maybe it's because of money, maybe it's because of interest. I don't know why they're telling you such a crazy thing. There's no permission in the Torah. So the older guy, he's maybe 75 years old, something like that, he points at me, he goes, you know what? He goes, you I believe. I'm never driving again. I'm going to go to the shul next to my house. Meaning the guy has a shul next to his house, but this rabbi is convincing him to drive to shul because that's the only way he's going to get his money and, and all that. So this is people that make decisions contrary to halakha for their own personal interest, whatever that interest may be. We have to be careful. Even if whoever you call your rabbi told you something wrong, it doesn't remove you from sin itself. Meaning, ignorance is not bliss in Judaism. Being ignorant is not an excuse for sinning. Because you are obligated to learn Torah every single day anyway. With a rabbi, without a rabbi. If your rabbi is the biggest rabbi, the smallest, it doesn't make a difference. If you live in the middle of Antarctica, and your next door neighbor is a polar bear, and then there's a penguin somewhere down the street, and they come visit once in a while to study Chavuta with you, you're still obligated to learn Torah. It doesn't make a difference. You are, if you have a Sefer Torah in front of you, you have to learn Torah. And in today's age, there's no excuse not to learn Torah. It's so easy. You don't have money for books. You have a phone? Okay, press a couple buttons on the phone. You have a Sefer Torah in front of you. You can't read. You can't. You, you can listen. Your ears work. Okay, you can listen to Shul Torah. It's so easy to learn Torah today. There's no excuse. Oh, I didn't know. If you drove 200 miles an hour in a highway and the cop pulled you over and he said, Oh, I didn't know there was a speed limit. Sir, we don't care you don't know. You put other lives in danger. You put your own life in danger. We're going to take away your life. Yeah, but I didn't know. It doesn't make a difference. It does not absolve you from the crime. Ignorance is not an excuse. Not in law, civil law, and not in Torah law. You cannot go up to Shemayim and tell them, listen, I spent, I was too busy making money. I didn't have time to learn Torah. There's no such excuse. So even if we have rogue rabbis, rogue leaders that are telling you things wrong, it's, you cannot use as an excuse. All it means is that they get punished also. That's all it means. So, up to here we see that these things, these types of decisions that seem like it's not really a big deal or seem like it's more of a personal event, obviously have a lot of weight for the rest of us. So now it continues, the Mishnah continues, and it says, Wild beasts come upon the world for vain oaths and for the desecration of God's name. So, first, let's understand what does it mean? What is a chaya? Chaya, we're thinking, oh, what, a lion's going to come to uh, Aventura and uh, bite all the Mechalel Shabbat? Chaya doesn't always mean chaya. Chaya, animal, doesn't always mean an animal. The Gemara Masechet Kiddushin talks about how even in the days of when there's not going to be a Sanhedrin, 
it still does not change the fact that Hashem is still going to deliver punishment the same way that He would have when the Sanhedrin was around, just in different ways. So, we went over this last week. There's no need to go over it again. But the point is, is that, for example, a chaya, you know, when, when the Torah talks about how there was an animal that would attack people, if the uh, Sanhedrin did not punish them, and an animal would run them over, I don't know, a big bull would break away and run them over. So, in today's world, this is the equivalent of a car accident. This is the equivalent of airplane crash. This is the equivalent of a terrorism. And the clearest, the clearest is a terrorist. Because you see these terrorists, Hashem and Achem, they blow themselves up. This is worse than a chaya. This is worse than an animal, these people. And we need to know that these things are not just happenstance. They don't just happen. The terrorists didn't just get the permission from Hashem to, be, you know, to do what he wanted. And Hashem just didn't pay attention. Everything happens for a reason. Everything. So this chayara, this terrorist, in essence, is getting permission from Shamaim to fulfill what he desired. He, in essence, himself desired to be a terrorist and to kill somebody. But Hashem is the one that's going to allow it to work. Plenty of times, Baruch Hashem, Hashem saves us from all of these chayot, all of these animals, these ISIS, these uh, Hamas, these Palestinians, these Iranians, all of these people that are trying to kill us every day. Only they know how many times Hashem destroyed their plans. We don't even know how many times Hashem saved us. But once in a while, Hashem lets it work. Once in a while, the missile lands somewhere and somebody gets hurt. Somebody dies Hashem Echem. Once in a while, somebody gets stabbed. There's a phenomenal story. I think I told you guys this story recently, but it's still worth mentioning again. There was a guy, religious guy, just finished learning. And uh, after he finished learning, it was already night, and he was walking home. He noticed that there is some guy following him. It's night. It's a uh, narrow road, very dark, no people. It's a little worrisome in the middle of Israel. It's not exactly uh, always uh, pleasant to have somebody follow you. You see, he's making a right. The guy's making a right. making left. He's making left for a while. Eventually, he uh, walks, 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 walks eventually, and he uh, gets to his house, and the guy continues. Later on, that same guy that followed him stabbed somebody else. Mamash, he was a terrorist, and he stabbed somebody else. So they arrested him, and they uh, said, we saw you following. They saw the cameras, they tracked him or whatever, and they saw you, we were following somebody else. How come you, do, you didn't do something to him? They asked the terrorist, the, 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 the Arab. And he said, oh, I was waiting for his two big friends to leave. I was really looking, I was following him for a while, trying to kill him, I wanted to kill him, he was my target. I saw him, I looked at him, he was my target, but then all of a sudden, as soon as I decided, these two huge guys showed up, his two friends, so I was waiting for them to leave. Followed him, followed him, followed him. These people were going with him all the way to the house. I didn't know who they were. I couldn't handle all three of them. And in the end, he ended up going to his house. And those two friends followed him. So they called the, uh, the guy that almost died. And they tell him, who are these two friends that were with you? He says, which friends? The two people that uh, they saw him, the murderer, they goes, yeah, I saw him. He, you know, he was following me. I didn't know he was a terrorist. He goes, yeah, he said he didn't kill you because you had two friends with you. Who were these other two? We need the witnesses. 
He says, there was nobody else with me. No. He goes, sir, he says he saw there was two people with you. He goes, there was nobody with me. All I was doing is as soon as I realized this guy's following me, is I continued repeating the Mishnayot in my head that I learned in the Kolel that I just left. I continued repeating what I learned. Do, 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 do. Please, Hashem, protect me. I don't know who's behind me. What did you learn about? Oh, I learned about different things, about Malachim, Shamaim, all these different things. Apparently, they showed up too. Hashem protects us. Sometimes we don't even realize we're being protected. But the Chaya is always there. The animal is always there. Once in a while, Hashem lets him loose. So now, it's telling us here that these wild beasts, these ISIS, these terrorists, these, all these psychopaths, why does Hashem allow them to do what they're doing? So the first reason is when we take Hashem's name in vain. We swear, we make an oath for the wrong reason. Now, Rabbeinu Yonah says that the, the significance, the most significant reason of why Hashem allowed man to speak is in order to make an oath. To make an oath. Why? Because you're swearing in His name. There's a significance for it. But if you're doing it the wrong way, you have the opposite effect. So what's the wrong type of oath? There are two types of oaths that the Ten Commandments, the, the uh, Third Commandment, says that you're not allowed to use Hashem's name in vain. So the Gemara in Masechet Shavuot, page 29a, says there are two types of oath that you're not allowed to make under any condition. The first one is to swear in Hashem's name that a marble is a marble, meaning that something is obvious. Something is obvious. They go, oh, well, you have a book in your hand, and you say, oh, yeah, I swear such and such, I swear I have a book. Wait, but I see you have a book. You don't have to swear. You're just using Hashem's name. Well, like you're using, uh, you know, it's like it's Mikey. And unfortunately today, people swear in Hashem's name. It's almost like a slang, especially in Israel. I know growing up, anytime you had a debate with somebody, so oh, no, I swear to my mom, I swear to my sons, I swear to myself, I swear to this, I swear. People swear like it's nothing. And this is a very, very big problem. This is not only a violation of the Ten Commandments, the Torah itself, but also this brings problems for Am Yisrael. The second thing is to swear that something wooden is actually gold. Meaning this is also obvious, but it's the obvious of the opposite. It's obvious that you're lying. It's like somebody swearing that we are, uh, instead of me holding a book, I'm holding an airplane. This is ridiculous. This is, again, using Hashem's name in vain. So the Eben Ezra said that in his generation, this is almost the generation of the Rambam, the generation of the Rambam, he says people have become so accustomed to making oaths for no reason whatsoever, he, he writes himself, I can prove to you that it's the worst possible sin from the rest of the commandments. Making this oath. Meaning you have the Ten Commandments, don't, uh, you know, Hashem is the only God, don't have false idols, then you have, don't use Hashem's name in vain. He says from that point on, the other seven commandments, he says this is the worst sin of all of them. Even more than Shabbat. Even more than murder. Murder. 
even more than more than anything else why he says because this is the one sin you can make so many times every day to the point that you forgot you made the sin he said even Shabbat you can only make the sin once a week Shabbat once a week he says even murder you can't murder whenever you want even stealing you can't steal whenever you want you have to wait for the right time in the right place and so on he says these other sins you're limited to when you can do it but swearing in Hashem's name you can do it so many times you forgot you do it and when somebody tells you listen did you swear in Hashem's name no I swear I didn't you're so delirious of the truth that you forgot you did it that you're actually doing it while you're saying you didn't do it that's how irresponsible sometimes a person's speech can be to such a point that he forgets that he's actually making a sin. So he shows up to Shemaim, he thinks he's a tzaddik, and they judge him as a rasha, and he's surprised. He thought he was a tzaddik, he kept Shabbat, he kept kosher, he had talat mishpacha, all the things. They said, yeah, you're going to go to section 6 of here in Geinom. Wait, why not? Why? I learned Torah. You learned Torah? What Torah did you learn? No, I swear. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's why you have section 6 over there. So that's the thing is that a person needs to know that Hashem gave you the power of speech and you have to be careful with what you say I remember when we were in the business world this is the main thing that I tried to train all of the salesmen that worked for me all of the uh, assistants is that it's better off you don't talk than say something foolish or say something dishonest well if you don't say anything say, say I don't know somebody asked you a question you don't know say I don't know you don't know. You don't have to know anything. You're not being paid to know everything in the world. But to lie or to make up a new truth, now you're putting yourself, you're digging yourself a hole that you're not going to be able to get yourself out of because eventually you're going to forget that you lied. So for example, some of the guys, a lot of the people that, that uh, work in the investment business, they start young. Now people for some reason, at least when I was in it, thought that being young is a bad thing. They would lie about their age. So the guy would ask them, you know, their client that's, you know, by the time he has money, he's already in his 50s, 60s. So he's asking this uh, young guy, how old are you? You know, I'm going to invest $100,000 with you, half a million dollars with you. I want to know, I'm dealing with a grown-up. How old are you? And the kid that's 25 years old will lie, no, I'm 35. I'm 40. And this is ludicrous. Number one, I don't really think the guy's going to care that much. If he does, you probably don't want him as a client to begin with. It has nothing to do with your age. Second of all, second of all, you have to remember that you lied to him. Because if he asked you once, most likely he's going to ask you again. Most likely he's going to meet you one day. And he thinks he's meeting a 45-year-old and you're a little puppy just got out of your diapers. You have a problem. And this is one of the biggest things that people simply don't account for. When you're lying, you don't realize that it's much more difficult to live a lie than to live the truth. Because you have to remember who you lied to and what did you tell him. Because if you lied, you're not giving everyone the same lie usually. You told him you're 35. The other guy you told me you're 37. The other guy you told him you're 42. The other guy you told me you're married with three kids and you, have, you don't even have a girlfriend. You keep giving people different lies. You have like 87 different lives. They remember it because they only know one version of what they think is true. You, on the other hand, you've lied to so many people, you forgot what's true. One of the guys that I had to fire because I, I found out he was lying, uh, after I heard, the guy was talking to one of his clients. Sorry. The guy was talking to, uh, not a client, to a prospect. 
And uh, one of the people in my office brought this to my attention, so I went and overheard his conversation. And I start seeing this kid is telling, he's not a kid, he was in his 30s. He's telling his client, yeah, yeah, I'm going to go on my boat this weekend, and uh, yeah, we're going to fly, I have this private jet I just got, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and he's pretending to be a multimillionaire. Now, I know he's not a millionaire, and the reason why is because I'm writing his paycheck. I know what he makes. So he's telling, he's pretending to be Rockefeller to earn this guy's business. And after he finished the call, I had a meeting with him. I told him, this is, where are you going with this? He goes, well, what's the difference? What? I said, exactly, what's the difference? Why are you lying? And I realized those other issues with him, I had to fire him. And the reason why is because if they'll do it for you, they'll do it to you. My wife, God bless her, taught me this rule a long time ago that people don't do something just once. In the business world, there's something called poaching. Poaching means that you're trying to get your competition's employees. Instead of going to find somebody from the street and train him, invest a lot of money into him, every guy that came to my office had to invest $150,000, $200,000 into him until he became something, maybe. It's a lot of money to invest into a guy. It's easier to just go get somebody that works for your competition, that you already know he's really good, and even if it costs you a little bit more money, but you know for sure this is going to work. So there's an actual uh, strategy in business that to hire the competition's employees. Because number one, you get somebody that's already good. Number two, you also get the uh, competition secrets. The problem is, is that when people do this, they forget this rule that my wife taught me. If they do it for you, they'll do it to you. If he stole the competition secrets and brought it to your office, eventually he's going to steal your secrets and give it to the other competition. Because the only reason he's doing it is not because he likes you. He just likes the dollars. And that's the problem when you're dealing with people that have no Yirat Shamayim, they have no fear of Hashem, they don't consider these things. The Gemara says you're not even allowed to be in a closed room with them. Why? They may kill you. A person that doesn't have Yirat Shamayim, there's no, there's no boundaries. There's no boundaries. You say the wrong thing to him, he loses his mind on you. There's no boundaries. This obviously applies in the business world, in the day-to-day life, in marriages, in uh, raising kids, in our yeshivot, in our kolels, in our bateknesset. You have to know who to deal with. Now, when a person is completely irresponsible with the way they speak, it's very difficult to deal with them. It's very difficult to deal with them. You never know when they're serious. You never know when they're angry. You never know anything really about them. You can't get a read on the guy. She says things just to get a, you know, sometimes there's certain people just say things just to get your reaction. They'll say off comments. They think they have a radio show. They'll say off comments just to get your reaction, just to see what happens. I was just kidding. I was just kidding. You know, like some people like to play these games. They'll steal your car keys, but they won't tell you. And I'll see you breaking your head looking for the car keys. I need to go to work. I need to go to work 15 minutes later. It's like, ah, you're looking for these? Torah says that guy's a rasha. That guy's a rasha. Why is it a joke? What do you mean you're a joke? It's a joke for you. It's not a joke for him. I'm just kidding. It's not I'm just kidding according to the Torah. So a person needs to be careful with his actions, needs to be careful with his speech and so on. Because if he's not careful, if he's not careful between him and his fellow, He's definitely not going to be careful between him and Hashem Barach.
if he's not careful with the words that he chooses to tell his wife even the way he tells her I love you even a simple thing like that that you would think natural how what is a wrong way to say I love you yes there's a wrong way to say I love you if the only time you say I love you to your wife is through text message you have a problem if the only time you say I love you to your wife is because you want something you have a problem that's not the right way to say I love you usually the best time to say I love you is after you gave her something not after you got something it's more authentic if the I love you is like yeah yeah I love, I love you yeah yeah sure sure uh, yeah and you're back on the phone that's not I love you it's better if you don't say anything it's better if you don't say anything no so you keep it to yourself because she knows deep down inside she knows this I love you I have what does he mean but he says I hate me love like this who needs what did I get married for so these are things that have been Adam this is between a man and his fellow his wife his children and so on Today, people are scared to say, I love you to our kids. They're like embarrassed to say, I love you to their kids. The kids are embarrassed to say to the parents. And this is all because we don't watch our words. We don't know. We're too concerned with what the world around us thinks of us instead of what Hashem Ibarach thinks of us. So it's important to know that if you're going to say something, make sure there's only one version of the truth. Second thing is, don't use Hashem's name. It's just, just like that. Don't swear for any reason. Only a Meshugah swears. You know, people want to take, make themselves big tzaddikin and say, oh, I'm going to make a nedel. I'm going to make a nedel that I'm going to do such and such. Don't do a nedel and don't do anyone any favors. Only a crazy person makes a nedel. Why? Because if you fail, you're putting your family in danger. According to the Torah, the reason why Hashem sometimes kills a... a, 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 a a wife and children is because the husband is an idiot and made a nether to do something and he didn't fulfill it. Oh, I'm making a nether, I'm going to pay you back. And it happened that he didn't pay him back. He forgot. Not because on purpose. He forgot. He had simply forgot to pay back. He forgot to pay back. He forgot to show up. He forgot to do something that was simple. According to Shamaim, now they're going to start looking at the entire cheshbonot of everything else and you've literally put other people in danger. Hashem does not judge the world like a human being. So it's critical for people to know that the commandments are not just for uh, history. So that's the first thing. The Rabbeinu Yana talks about some of these things and he says literally this is the difference between a man and an animal. Now the Ramban, gives an extraordinary chidush in the book of Leviticus on the Pirush where it says that uh, talks about the animals talks about this specific issue of how people make false oaths and so on so the Ramban gives a chidush he says when Hashem originally created the animals in Sefer uh, Bereshit in Genesis chapter 1 verse 30 it says and every beast of the earth Every green herb is for good. Meaning that originally when Hashem Barach created the animals, all of them were vegetarian. The lion was eating salad. The uh, tiger was eating some, uh, you know, some uh, orange juice for breakfast, having some orange juice for breakfast. The giraffe was making them the, uh, you know, the salad with some nice sauce. Everybody was on a diet. Everybody was on a diet. No one was eating meat. According to the Torah, so the Ramban says, why did Hashem change this? 
Why did Hashem change this? Now, if you're going to say, yes, of course, we know. This is, uh, this is not a chidush. We know that after the generation of Noah, Hashem changed the world. Everything went down a level. Everything went down a level. And man had to, originally man was also vegetarian. Man was also vegetarian. But after everyone sinned, including the animals, everyone went down a level, and now officially Hashem gave Noah the seventh mitzvah. First six mitzvot He gave to Adam Rishon. The seventh mitzvah He gave to Noah, which is don't eat an animal when it's still alive. You have to kill it first. Why? So, so it's not uh, vicious and so on. That's the seventh mitzvah, and that's why the seven laws of Noah are called by Noah's name, because he got the last mitzvah. Which means that only after Noah, only after the flood, did even mankind become a, um, a, a meat eater. So that explains only part of the, of the question. That only explains why man started eating animal. It doesn't explain why the animal started eating animal. Why did any animal start eating animal? Why did the lion start becoming, you know, his favorite food became chicken with some zebra on top? Why? He likes the zebra with little sauce on it. Why? 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 All of a sudden, last week he was hanging out with the zebra. Before the mabul, they were hanging out together. Shemarachem. Some of them even became boyfriend girlfriend. Now he's eating. Now he's eating the zebra. Now he's eating the giraffe. Why? The Ramban says the reason why Hashem made the animals carnivorous, meaning meat eaters, was only after Adam Arishon uh, sinned. Why? Because now they had a new mission in life. What's their mission? They're going to be used as messengers to punish men. Meaning the only reason why the lion started eating meat was so Hashem can use him to go punish the man that sins. Hashem Hashem. And this explains, the Ramban continues, he goes, this explains the verse in the book of Isaiah, Chapter 11, verse 6 to 8, the very famous nevoah, very famous messianic vision that Isaiah had, which is the wolf will dwell with the sheep, the leopard will lie down with the kid, the lion will eat hay like a cattle, the suckling will play by the hole of a viper, meaning that all of a sudden, everyone's vegetarian again. So the Ramban says this is not a miracle. People think this is a miracle. That the, the prophet Isaiah is talking about a miracle that's going to happen at the time of Mashiach. No, this is not a miracle. This is just the world returning back to how it was at the time of Adam Rishon. The lion was a vegetarian. He goes back to being a vegetarian. The snake was a vegetarian. He goes back to being a vegetarian. Everybody began, Why? Because now Mashiach came. Already the punishment came. The war, the Gogo Magog is finished. All the reshaim is finished. All that stuff is finished. That's it. There's no more sins. Once there's no more sins, there's no more reason to have the animal used as a weapon, used as a tool by Hashem Barach. Is he going to talk again? Well, Bezat Hashem, hopefully we live to see it. So here we see that a little bit more commentary, a little bit more explanation of some of the things that are going to happen in Mashiach and how it has to do with us.
But now, the other aspect, the other reason of why this chayara'ah, this wild beast form of punishment comes to the world, we see how it actually has already been used in history. In the book of Daniel, the prophet Daniel shows how Hashem runs the world, specifically with this midah, with this specific thing, this tool. This tool specifically. He says, who is the chayara'a for? Who is the wild beast for? For the rasha. Not for the tzaddik. So the prophet Daniel, almost 3,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago approximately, they threw him away. They said to Nebuchadnezzar, Hey, Nebuchadnezzar, this guy, you said a commandment. No more prayer. No more mincha. No more arvit. No more shachrit. No more praying. No more Judaism. No more nothing. What did this guy do? We went into his house. And we saw him praying. He's going against you. Throw him into the lions. They threw him into the lions. What happened with the lions? All the lions. Now before you throw him into the lions, they wanted to make a whole theatrics out of it. They wanted to do a whole show. So what do they do? They starve the lions to make sure that as soon as they throw anyone in there, there's nothing that's going to be finished. They throw Daniel in there. All of a sudden, all of the lions become little puppies. They come, they play with him, they hang out with him, they lick him, like he's their long-lost friend. Long-lost friends, they've been waiting for him all this time. Yeah, but you're hungry, though. You haven't eaten in three days, four days. Doesn't make a difference. He's your friend, you like him, he trains. Doesn't make a difference. You're supposed to eat. You're going against your nature. One day, two days, three days, three days like this, they say this is already a joke. He's not eating, they're not eating, no one's eating and nothing's happening and they're all, they're all making fun of us. It's mamash a joke. To all of us, say, he's a Ish Kodesh, take him out. They throw somebody else in there to see that, uh, you know, maybe this was all conspiracy. Literally, the guy that threw him in there, they threw him into the hole. The lions ate him in midair. He never arrived, he never actually hit the floor. They finished him in midair. But Daniel walked away. Oh, I'll see you guys later. Bye, lions. It was fun hanging out with you for three days. Now, this is nice. This is a nice story. But it was, come on, it's 2,500 years ago. So it, we think it's not really relevant to us. So, Baruch Hashem, the Or HaChaim HaKadosh had the same exact thing. How so? Or HaChaim, his whole life was Torah. But of course, he didn't have the option of just learning all day. He had to work in order to make money. Most of the Chachamim in previous generations would work to some extent. But they wouldn't work like us where we become slaves to the money. They would work literally just enough to make money to survive the day. Just enough money to make, okay, you need $5 to survive the day. As soon as I make $5, I'm finished. So what he would do, he would make garments. So one day the king, I think it was in Morocco if I'm not mistaken, asked, wanted to get a special suit. They said, oh, you got to go to Ochaim. Ochaim HaKadosh, he makes good suits, so on and so forth. Okay, so they went to him. Said, we want you to make a suit for the king. He said, I'm uh, sorry. I already finished for the day. What's finished for the day? He goes, I finished for the day. I just finished. I made what I need to make today. And that's it. I finished. He said, no, no, it's the king. It's not some uh, big client. You have to make something for the king. Mm-mm. Now I'm not talking anymore. <laughs> now I have to learn Torah. He starts learning. He's ignoring them completely. Completely. I'm thinking, this guy's crazy. Okay, we're going to come back tomorrow. They come back the next day. 
said, listen, you have to make the king a suit. Finished. He's already finished for the week. He made enough money in one day for the whole week. He's not studying anymore. He's not working anymore. He made the five dollars he needs to make for the whole week. He's finished. He refuses to take the job, but this is a million dollar job. It doesn't make a difference. I made just enough to survive not working. Now, when you say I'm not working to a big client, or sometimes you just don't want this client. Sometimes it's better off not to have the client. Certain clients, it's their kapat avonot. You're going to have them, you're going to suffer. With all the money in the world that they can have, all the business in the world they can give you, it's better off not to have them. There are certain clients that are litigious. They're looking to sue you. Before you even did anything, they're already looking to sue you. Before you already did anything, they're looking to complain about something. Certain clients just like that. It's better off not to have them. But here, this is not the type of client like, that it's like that way. Why? This is the king. King tells you what to do. You have to do it. Whether he's going to pay you or not is irrelevant. Or Chaim was not really care, was not really considering the fact that this guy is a king or not. Why? Because he only has one king. Hashem Yidbar is the only king he follows. He says, I finished working, I'm done. Now the king says, arrest this guy and send him to the lions. They take Orachayim, they throw him into the dungeon with the lions. What happens? Same thing like Daniel. Lions become his friends. They sit over there like little puppies. He starts reviewing Mishnayot and Gemarot in his head, learning Torah with the little lions next to him. One day, two days, three days, Mamash, the same exact thing as the prophet Daniel. Only difference is, this happened 300 years ago, instead of 3,000 years ago. Meaning, that once a person becomes Kadosh, the rules of nature that apply to the rest of mankind do not apply to them. This is the reason why they call them Orachayim Akadosh. Chaim ben Atar is his real name. So, these principles of Hashem using this chayara, this evil animal, this form of punishment, applies to the ones that deserve the punishment. But anyone else that focuses their life on doing what Ratzon Hashem, doing the will of Hashem, has nothing to worry about. This is what I always talk to, talk to people about in regards to some people love to talk about Mashiach, what's going to happen when Mashiach comes, what's going to be, what's going to be, what's going to be. First thing you should be wor- worried about are you going to survive? Don't worry about what if there's going to be food, if you're going to have money still, if your wife is going to be the same one, if the husband is going to be the same. Don't worry about all of those things and what's going to happen. First and foremost, the Rambam says, to talk about anything that's going to happen after Mashiach comes is a complete waste of time. It's not going to help you with Yirat Shamaim, and it's not going to help you with Avat Hashem. It's not going to help you with any, any way of forming, of, of connecting to Hashem. That's first of all. Second of all, who says you're going to survive? Are you so sure of yourself that you're such a tzaddik that if Mashiach comes, you're going to be okay? First, let's be concerned about surviving. Meaning survive, meaning be a tzaddik. If you're doing everything that it says in the Torah, to the best of your capabilities, you're learning Torah, you're keeping the mitzvot, to the best of your capabilities, you're not making excuses for yourself, then you're too busy serving Hashem, you're most likely not thinking about Mashiach, what's going to happen. You're just pretty much focusing on serving Hashem. If you're not serving Hashem, if you're still making excuses for yourself, if you're still marrying the non-Jew, if you're still stealing, if you're still 
have terrible midot, you're still stingy, you're still arrogant, you still have all these things, and you have no desire whatsoever to fix yourself, then really all you should do is read Tehilim so the Mashiach doesn't come. So he doesn't come. Why? If he comes, there's no more opportunity for you to do tshuva. For the most part, most people that talk about Mashiach, 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 shouldn't be worried about Mashiach. They should worry about doing tshuva. This myself included and anyone else that's listening to this because in the generation that we have today there's so much confusion out there that it's very very difficult to understand the difference between right and wrong very different to understand the difference between emet and shekel because the emet and the shekel sometimes are wearing the same uniform and this brings us up to the next issue the next issue that brings these wild beasts that affect the world that affect Am Yisrael at large is Chilul Hashem Chilul Hashem, Rabotai, is one of these things that the Gemara says the beginning, the, uh, I'm sorry, the uh, tshuva for Chilul Hashem can only be, begin at death, once a person dies. Because it's so significant, it's such a significant avera to desecrate Hashem's name, it's really something you want to run away from as far as you can. There's a few things that are bad. There's a few things that are just terrible. This is one of them. This is not just biting the hand that feeds you. This is cursing it out too. But most of us don't know that, don't know what Chilul Hashem means. We think that if we curse Hashem's name, that means Chilul Hashem. No, Chilul Hashem actually is very easy to do. It's a very easy sin to make if you're not careful. So desecrating Hashem's name, first and foremost, you should know. If you're going to sin, meaning you know you're going to make a sin. You know you're going to make a sin. Some people, that's their life. They want to go to a casino every weekend. They want to go with a girl that's not their wife all the time. They want to have a girlfriend on the side. They want to do this. They want to do certain things that everyone knows is sin. You don't need to be a kadosh. You don't need to be a Jew. Everyone knows it's wrong. You should know public sinning is Chilul Hashem. Sinning publicly. Everyone knows you're, you're doing it as a sin. You're a, everyone knows you're a thief. Everyone knows you're Mechalel Shabbat. You're going to drive to Bet Knesset. Everyone knows you're driving your Ferrari. You dro- you, not only you drove, you parked right next to the shul. This is one form of Chilul Hashem. It's not just desecration of Shabbat. It's the desecration of Hashem's name. Why? Because you're mamaj putting like the mitzvot are not relevant to you. The rules are not relevant to you. They're relevant to Moshe Rabbeinu, to Rabbi Akiva. But not to you. In Hebrew we say to some pasalim, like you're, uh, like you're putting a line across them. It's not for you. What? Kavod uh, Hashem? Nah, that's not for me. What? Shabbat? Not for me. What? Murder? Sometimes. Okay, put a check mark next to it. Like you're picking and choosing to such an extent, but you're doing it publicly. It's not like a person, there's certain people that sin in private. Some people sin in private. Everybody sins. There's no such thing as a person that doesn't sin. Everybody sins. But to act with such chutzpah that you sin and not, don't have a, 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 a little bit, an ounce of remorse for the sin, not even an ounce of remorse, not even an ounce of care, not even an ounce of even consideration, this is now as transferred to a next level, Avera. 
you are now a mechalel shem shamayim. Now you have a serious problem. So, public sinning, the people that know that it's not allowed to drive on Shabbat and they still do it, the people that know it's not allowed to not eat non-kosher, whether it's meat or not, even if it's salad at a non-kosher place, but they still go do it, the people that know that they're not allowed to be affectionate with a woman in public, they still do it. These are forms of sins. And Hashem Echem, this is a serious problem. It's not just the one small sin that it starts with. Once it becomes public, and now becomes a different level of sin. If you did the same Avera in private, it's a sin. It's terrible. But once it became public, once everyone knows, oh yeah, look at that Jew that did such and such. Now they're not judging the Jew. They're judging the Jews. Now they're not judging just the Jews. They're judging the Torah. They're judging Hashem. Pretty much everything went under the carpet now. Why? Because you decide to be inconsiderate. So, Rabbeinu Yonah and Meiri both say, if a person is not cautious regarding Hashem's kavod, such a person deserves to be trampled by these animals. Meaning, it's midah keneged midah. Now some of this stuff is tough to hear, probably all of it. But the reality is, Rabotai, this is not a chidush to any of you. None of this is a chidush. Nothing that I said is actually a chidush. Why? You read it at least twice, if not three times a day. Who prays every day? Most, Baruch Hashem, all of you, I'm assuming, are praying at least once, twice, or three times a day. Now all of you say Kriyat Shema. Kriyat Shema, it says everything I just said up to now. What does it say? After you say Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. It starts, Ve'aftet Hashem Elokecha, Bechol Levavecha, Bechol Nafshecha. You love the Shem. With all your heart, with all of your life, with all of your uh, money, your possessions. And you have to follow His commandments and teach Him to your children. And you laid it filin, you wrapped them around your arms and your head. And you put the mezuzot on your uh, doors. But then it continues the verses from the book of Deuteronomy. Sefer Dvarim, chapter 11, 13 to 21. It says, if you don't do everything I just said, meaning he's naming different types of sins that you are, that a person can do, and so on and so forth and Hashem anger will blaze on Hashem on the person and he will restrain the heavens there will be no rain there will be drought no parnasa, no shlombayit no refuah no nothing all the disasters in the world he tells you every single day twice to three times a day if you do Kriyachma before Alamita, it's three times. If you just do the minimum requirement, which is morning and night, twice a day, Hashem tell, remind you of everything I just said for the last hour. You need to know, if you do everything good, Shrecha. Shrecha, you'll have great. If you don't, you should know. You're messing with the wrong party. 
And Rabbi Ephraim said to a person that he saw, he went to, he went to this, uh, they had this event, and they were at a fancy place, and the waiter brought them wine, and he said, I, listen, I can't open this wine. I said, why not? He says, because I'm mechalel Shabbat. I don't keep Shabbat, and it's yain lo mevushal. It's an uncooked wine. So if Michalel Shabbat opens a, uh, uh, an uncooked wine, you're not allowed to drink the wine. According to Allah, doesn't matter. Ashkenazi, Safari, doesn't make a difference. And he knew enough about Shabbat that he knows that he's not allowed to give them this yain lo mevushal. So Ephraim tells him, he goes, later on, they got to it. He says, why are you messing with Hashem? Why are you messing with him? Don't you realize, I mean, you, you take this into consideration. You're not messing with one of your friends. You're not messing with the government. You're not messing with your boss. You're not getting your boss angry or your customer angry. It's not your wife or your husband or your kid or your neighbor or even the government or the president. You're messing with Hashem. Why are you messing with Hashem? Like if you know that the Torah is real, if you know that Hashem is real, and you know at least one rule of the Torah that says Mechalel Shabbat is considered 100% an idolater, meaning that if he takes the wine, he puts it into your cup, you're not allowed to drink it. He drinks from the cup, you're not allowed to drink it. If it's Lome Bushal. You know these things, and you still do it. Why are you messing with him? What do you think? He's your buddy? He's just going to let it go? He says, what is this like? This is like there's one of the, you know, sometimes you see these people that are really big, like huge people, they work out, they can lift a mountain. Huge people, and there's a little guy, it's like uh, four foot nothing, comes in, like slaps him in the face. Pah! Now, even if the big guy, he's big, he's not going to just move every time somebody says move. He takes the slap like a champ, he looks at the guy, laughs. Doesn't do anything. Next day, the little guy, little midget, comes, comes, takes a fist this time, Pah! Big guy is. Got his attention, but still, like, he feels bad, little guy. Little guy, he thinks it's funny, it's cute, he just punched me in the face. But he's so big, he's like, I'm a lick, the guy. Like, ah, whatever. Third day, the guy is taking a bat this time. Little guy, the bat's bigger than him. <laughs> On the bigger. Now, what? Even if the, even if the big guy is Avraham Avinu, at some point he's going to react. At some point he's going to do something. Even if he's big, he's huge. Le'avdil, Hashem itbarach. You're a little guy, nothing. We're all nothing, less than nothing. We're going to Hashem every Shabbat with the car, with the cigarette, with the TV, with the iPhone, phone, this phone, that phone, all the nonsense that we do. And in essence, the Gemara Maseret Sanhedrin and the Gemara Maseret Shabbat says every time a person is Mechalel Shabbat, it's like he's running in the middle of the street and says, Hashem, I don't believe in you. This is worse than being the small little guy that slaps the big guy. So every Shabbat, instead of saying, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, I lived another week, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, you created the whole world for me, Baruch Hashem, what do you say? Every week is like, Tah, Tah, how many times are you going to mess with God? How many times? How many times are you going to let it go? Once, twice, three times. How many times? Fifty times? A hundred times? How many? Why are you messing with God? That's what you have to take into consideration. You're not messing with uh, one of your buddies. 
And that's the thing that people simply don't understand, don't take into consideration when they make these significant sins. Now, the issue of Chilul Hashem unfortunately happens in so many different ways simply because sometimes we're not careful with our actions but also sometimes because we're not careful with our own beliefs. Even your belief can turn into a Chilul Hashem. Now with all due respect to anyone that's zealous, it's a mitzvah to be zealous for the right reason. We learned this from Pinchas. Pinchas saw that Zimri is making a Chilul Hashem by going with the Goya Cosby. He came to Moshe Rabenu. He says, Moshe, didn't isn't there a that you taught us yourself on Mount Sinai that when there is a Jew and a non-Jew intimate and they're in the middle of the action and making Chilul Hashem, you're allowed to kill them in the middle of the action. If they're in the middle of the action, if they just know each other or they're walking but they're not in the middle of the actual intimate action, you can't kill them. But if they're in the middle of the action, you're allowed to kill them. Moshe was so in such a shock at that moment because Zimri came to him himself with Cosby and said, Hey, look, you had a non-Jewish wife. He tells Moshe Rabbeinu in public, You had a non-Jewish wife, Tzipora. You converted her. I'll convert this one later. Mamash, embarrassing him publicly. All the Kohanim, all the Tzadikim, all the Skenim, everyone's watching this. He just talked like this to the Gdolado. And he's taking this Goya on his, uh, on his arm. And they're walking together like boyfriend-girlfriend. And they're going into the tent. Now, now, this guy is not just some average guy. This was the Gdolado of the Shimon tribe. This was the biggest rabbi in the Shimon tribe. This is like any big rabbi that you have in history. Not like some guy that was a rasha all the time. This is like the biggest rabbi in the world goes to another big rabbi in the world and starts desecrating his name in public. Crazy. So you didn't know Moshe Rabbeinu Hamash was in shock. So now Pinchas, Ben Elazar, Ben Aaron Akoin, comes to Moshe Rabbeinu and he reminds him, the Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin, page 82 says, that he reminds Moshe Rabbeinu, hey, hey, Moshe, 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 look what he's doing, it's Chilul Hashem what he's doing. It's Chilul Hashem what he's doing. Moshe says, you're right. I forgot the halacha. You're right. You remind me of the halacha. You go enforce it. You're zealous. You go enforce it. And that's what happens. Pinchas goes and kills those two. And Hashem rewards him for being zealous. To such an extent that he turned him into Eliyahu Navi. That's going to come three days before the Mashiach comes. According to the prophet Zechariah. Because he never died. And we need a prophet to make the Mashiach a Mashiach. And the second thing is, is they also made him a Kohen Gadol. Made him a Kohen Gadol. Unlike Aaron and his sons that Hashem made a Kohen Gadol initially, he didn't make Pinchas Kohen Gadol until this happened. So now he got reward for being zealous. So being zealous for the right reasons is a mitzvah. Alvay Elenu to be really zealous. To see a Mechalot Shabbat and say something. To see a person going out with a non-Jew and say something. Not kill anybody, chas but say something. At least tell the guy, listen, why don't you come to the shul? Give the guy a CD. 
Send the guy, let me give me your email address, let me send you something. Just do something. Show some signs of life, like you actually care that the guy is going against the sham, that you care about him even. Alvai, we are zealous like that. Somebody says something. So now, to be zealous is good. But if you're zealous for the wrong reason, or you're zealous in the wrong way, not only is it not a mitzvah, it's an avera that could technically turn into chilul Hashem. Now, everyone thinks that their rabbi is great. If he wasn't great, he wouldn't be your rabbi. Everyone thinks your, their rabbi is great. I personally think my rabbi is the best rabbi in the world. You want to debate? I'll debate you for as long as you want. He's the best rabbi in the world. And I'm sure you think your rabbi is the best in the world. Everyone thinks their rabbi is the best in the world. It's very easy to think that your rabbi is Mashiach. Very easy. I understand it. I'm telling you. If Hashem asked me, who should be Mashiach? I say, oh, my rabbi should be Mashiach. No questions asked. Don't ask me, oh, no, maybe I should. No, no, I already know the answer. He should be Mashiach. Hashem is not going to ask me. That's why he hasn't asked me. So now, it's very easy to love. If you're connected to your rabbi, it's very easy to love him. It's very easy to honor him. It's very easy if you have, if you have a connection with your rabbi. If you don't have a connection with your rabbi, you have to get yourself a rabbi. Say the charav. Now, in the Hasidut, the Gaon Mivilna had a problem with Hasidut. And he wasn't the only one. There were many other major Chachamim that had a major problem with Hasidut to such an extent that some of them said, like the Vilna Gaon said, that they are the closest form, they're the closest religion to Judaism. And he was talking about Breslev and, and Chabad and other Hasidut that were around at that time. Meaning he considered it so far away from basic level Judaism, he didn't consider them Jewish. Maybe he didn't see what would happen from them, maybe this, maybe that, I don't know. Maybe he did see, I don't really know. Of course, a lot of good came out of Hasidut. We have the Baal Shem Tov, we have Rabbi Nachman from Breslev, we have the Babi Rebbe, and many, many other Kedoshim that came out of Hasidut that are still there now, have been, and so on and so forth. The problem is not Hasidut. The problem is when Hasidut turns into idolatry. The problem is when people turn their rabbi into an idol. That's the problem. Because that not only is the obvious sin of idol worshipping, you're not allowed to worship your rabbi, it doesn't matter even if he's Moshe Rabbeinu. That's why Hashem did not tell us where he buried Moshe Rabbeinu, because he knew that people would worship his grave. They would go to his grave and start praying to him instead of to Hashem. He says, this Moshe Rabbeinu, Kodesh Kodeshim, sacrificed his entire life for me. I'm not going to let people ruin it. So even that he didn't let. He didn't let the world see where, where he buried Moshe Rabbeinu. But the rest of the Chachamim, for the most part, we know where they're buried. We know where they are. For example, Oh Chaim, you go to the Arazetim in Yerushalayim, uh, near Yerushalayim over there, the uh, old city. That's where he's buried. You go to his grave. As many people go there every year. Arizal, the, uh, the Ramchal. There's even a cave of where is the last site that Eliyahu Navi was seen. Not that he was buried because he never died. There's even a cave that we went to one time in, uh, in, in uh, Israel of where Eliyahu Navi was at one point. And people pray there all day, all the time. Going to the graves by default, according to the Rambam, you shouldn't do. But there is another dad, there's another opinion that there is 
something good that could come out of it if you know how to do it the right way, meaning you're praying to Hashem at the grave, not praying to the tzaddik. You're not praying to the tzaddik. You're not praying to the person that died. You're praying to Hashem. The problem is that people sometimes fall in love with their rabbi so much that they turn him into an idol. And this, unfortunately, I don't think has been as bad in history more than it is now, at least not to my knowledge, the limited that it is. Two incidents that have happened just in the last few days, to me personally, that I saw are as follows. One, I saw this today. This was an announcement. It needs to be said because people need to understand that there's a problem. Biggest part of a problem is we don't talk about it. You just, uh, you know, behave like it doesn't exist. The guy has cancer, but you pretend it's a headache. Apparently, they announced in Chabad at 770 in New York, they put a public announcement on Sunday, April 29th, the uh, 15th of Iyal, and they said, I'll just say it in English. Tomorrow, they're saying this is on Sunday. Think tomorrow, the Melech Mashiach, the Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, is not going to be able to accept the congregation that comes to visit him every day because he doesn't feel well. He doesn't feel well, so he's not going to accept any of the any people that are visiting, any of the visitors. But he will be at the events the following day for the bar mitzvot and the weddings and all the other events. He'll be there. Well, by then, he should feel better. Now, if anyone has been sleeping under a rock for the last thirty years, the Rebbe died almost thirty years ago, twenty something years ago. He's not alive. He died. Everyone knows this. But apparently, they fell in love with the Rebbe to such an extent that they're a mash, they are, forget about, forget about the fact that they said that he's a Mashiach was already a problem to begin with. To say that the Rebbe's Mashiach, he's Mashiach, okay, whatever, you want to say whatever you want. There's levels of crazy. But to say he's still alive and he's not going to accept people because he doesn't feel well this is a new level of crazy, Rabotai. This is something, there's something wrong in the water. This is just, this is like, this is new levels. Because I always, I saw a video. I saw a video one time of how they give the Rebbe an Aliyah. Meaning they have, they give the Torah, they take the Torah out on Mondays and Thursdays and Shabbat, but I don't think anybody's recording on Shabbat. And they bring the Torah, and everybody, you know, there's three people again, Aliyah, except on Rosh Chodesh, you get four, and holidays, you get five, and so on. Point is, they give an Aliyah to the Rebbe. Now, one time somebody came to somebody that knows my rabbi, went to, he's a Chabadnik, he went there, but he's an Ishemet. And he saw they're giving an Aliyah to someone that doesn't exist, he died. And he sees they give an Aliyah, he's like, oh, Rabbi, you know, Morenu, Rabbeinu, Melech Mashiach, and everybody's dancing, and da da da. Everybody's like looking as if he's walking down the aisle. Now he's watching this whole fiasco. And he's is, is, is something wrong here, but okay, he doesn't say anything. But then he sees they're giving him an aliyah. So he says, he's a little, you know, a little, he's got a little fire in him. He says, 
Why don't you give him the Agba'ah too? Why don't you have him lift the Sefer Torah also? They threw him out. They threw him out of the shul. I guess maybe it's a little heavy. I don't know. The point is, Rabotai, there's a new level of crazy in the world. I understand people love him. I understand he was a tzaddik. But why are you, why are you perverting his Torah? Why are you perverting Hashem Barach's Torah? This is Chilul Hashem. This is the definition of Chilul Hashem. The Goyim are looking at us and they're saying, how is this different than J.C. Penny? We said he died and he came back. You're saying he died, didn't come back, came back, sometimes he's back, sometimes he doesn't feel well. Like, how is this different from Christianity? The Chilonim, the secular Jews are looking at this. Like, you want me to be religious like these people? Even I know without the Torah that he's not there. This is, this is Chilul Hashem. Now, Baruch Hashem, this was publicized by who? By Chabadnik. That is a Ishemit, that's a real Chabadnik, and it's not crazy. And he says, even the Meshichistim have gone to a new level. The people that are, you know, turn them into a Mashiach, even they are going to a new level of crazy. The fact that they've turned them into a Mashiach already is something that's a problem, but whatever, it's not Kfirah Gmura. It's not complete heresy, it's just crazy. Now to say that he can't see people because he's sick and he's going to come back tomorrow to the Bar Mitzvah? You've turned into an imaginary friend. You've, you've involved everybody else like a little kid, a five-year-old kid that has an imaginary friend and he's forcing you to play with him too. Something's wrong here. If you're his parent, okay, maybe you're going to play with him for a little while until he goes away. But you're now going to force your neighbors and the teachers and the principals. They're going to put you in a cuckoo house. But this is Chilul Hashem. This is Chilul Hashem. And this is something we have to speak about. Why? Because we have to understand that just because somebody says he's Chabad doesn't mean he's Chabad. If he is one of these people, I don't care if he has the Rebbe's face tattooed to his forehead, it does not make them Chabad. Chabad is a Chasidut that worries about Kvod Hashem, that worries about the honor of Hashem. The honor of Hashem means the honor of the Torah, following the Torah, not following some person, even if the person is a tzaddik. You don't desecrate Hashem's name to honor a person. You don't violate Hashem's Torah to honor the rabbi. It's just, just one thing doesn't cannot be. It cannot be, even if Moshe Rabbeinu comes and says, listen guys, I'm going to give you a new Torah. We cannot accept it. There's no new Torah. So, Real chasidut means you're doing above the definition of it. According to the Torah, definition of chasidut means that you're doing above and beyond halacha, above and beyond the law. If, let's say, for example, Shabbat is 25 hours, you keep 26. That's chasidut. If technically you're allowed to wear as a man, as a man, you're allowed to technically, according to halacha, wear a t-shirt. But you want to be a chassid and you want to be modest as can be, you're always going to wear a long sleeve shirt. doesn't necessarily need to be a dress shirt or whatever it is. You want to be tzanua, you want to be uh, modest as a man, you're always going to wear a long sleeve shirt. That is a small form of chassidut. And so on and so forth. Now these are not obligations, this is extra. You want to do extra, good for you. You don't want to do extra, it's fine. Point being... That's chasidut. Chasidut is above and beyond the law. And of course, it means working on your midot. If Hashem says, 
don't be angry to the average person that means that you not only you're not angry you're happy meaning you're going from the complete opposite extent you're an extremist but to the good Hashem says be generous you're overly generous you're above and beyond you miss nefesh. you sacrifice yourself now the other very famous Hasidut that's confused all the time is Breslev. We're sitting here in Breslev. We're learning here in Breslev. Because Rabbi Nachman Breslev was Kodesh Kodeshim. But unfortunately, some people that call themselves Breslevers are crazy. They're not Breslevers. They just call themselves that. They just wear a costume. So just the other day, somebody sent me a letter and said to me, listen, all the stuff that you're doing is good, but realistically in this generation, all you have to worry about is one thing. I said, Baruch Hashem, the whole Torah in one law, why you made it easy for me. So what's this law? He says, all you need to believe is that Rabbi Nachman was the Gilgul, was the reincarnation of Moshe Rabbeinu, and that's it, everything is good. You're taking Rabbi Nachman, you're taking Moshe Rabbeinu, you're taking the Torah, you put it all in the garbage. Who told you such stupidity? Like, who said such things? Where did you get this stuff from? What do you guys, like, find your Torah in a, in, a, in, a, in a fortune cookie? Where'd you get it from? Like, where do these people get this stuff from? People think that Breslev is a bunch of people that break dance in the middle of the street. They go, oh, emunah, emunah. What emunah? I'll tell you something that was chidush for me. I mean, I've read some of the stuff by Rabbi Nachman, but this was new for me. I only learned it today with my Rav. Because it's very, very interesting because today most people don't even know what Breslev is, even the Breslevers sometimes. It's like almost like we skip. So in Sichot Aran, that Rabbi Natan, his Talmid Muvak, his, his main Talmid, wrote his books. In Sichot Aran, Rabbi Nachman says the following in Perik 5, hey, he says the following. Now everyone knows Breslev, they know happy. Emunah, Emunah, happy Emunah, happy Emunah, breakdance, go to Uman, breakdance more. Okay. The people I talk about, Yirat Shaman, like, no, you should be a breast liver. You should be a breast liver. I said, okay, you should be a breast liver too. Why? Because this is what he says. Rabbi Nachman says, Ki rak onish. He says, the main key of serving Hashem, the main key, it's fear of punishment. Minky, foundation, beginning. Before you talk about anything, talk emunah, avat Hashem, anything, before you start any, before you even say Shema Yisrael, you should know the bare base, the first step you take on the 5,000 steps that to, to get to the to Shemaim, first step, yirat ha'onesh, meaning fear, pure fear of Hashem punishing you. The beginning. That's what Rabbi Nachman is saying. Why? Ubli yirat ha'onesh, this is because without fear of pure punishment, we're not talking about fear of, of uh, you're not going to get to a high level of chasidut or you're not going to be tamid chacham. No, no, we're talking about pure genom. Without fear of genom, whether this world or the next world, you cannot even begin serving Hashem. Can't begin. You can't, it's not even step one. Everything you're doing is tainted. Everything you're doing is perverted. Without having the very basic level, you know who you're dealing with here. Vafilu tzadikim. He says here, Vafilu tzadikim tzichim gam ken yira. 
even the tzaddikim need this. It's not like just for the regular people. Don't just think I'm talking about all the ballet tshuva that are breakdancing. No, he says, even the tzaddikim gam ken Why? Ki because people that serve Hashem out of love are very, very few. What is he talking about? His generation. His Talmidim. He's talking, imagine us. His Talmidim. He says there's very few people that exist in the world that serve Hashem out of actual love. Again, he repeats it. He repeats it ten times just in this page. The key is to know there is, there must be a fear of onish, of pure punishment. Eventually, you get the irata omemut. What about it? Not every person gets to that level of yira. You know, some people say, yeah, but what about uh, you know the highest level of yirat shemaim? Okay, Yirat Shemaim, we understand. He goes, no, no, not everybody gets to the high level. Why? Most people, the highest level they can reach is pure, just, just fearing of punishment. All this higher levels of Emunah and, and, and Yirat Romemut and Avat Hashem, loving Hashem, and so on and so forth. It says, even in his generation, a couple of hundred years ago, he says, very few people ever get there. So all of these people, these speakers, or whatever they are, that are telling the public you should really focus on loving Hashem, you know, you should be like Rabbi Nachman. I don't know which Rabbi Nachman they're talking about. Because this Rabbi Nachman doesn't talk about it. He doesn't say that. He says, you want to serve Hashem? Start with fearing punishment, pure fearing. Why? Because once you fear punishment, that means you have an idea of who you're dealing with. He's not your buddy. He's your God. Once you know you're dealing with, maybe you can get to loving Hashem and so on and so forth. But don't think that loving Hashem is the standard. Because even he says, most people, it's completely not relevant to them. And he continues, why? He says, why, why is Yirat Hashem? Why is fear of the punishment critical? It's the only thing that can break a person's ta'avot, a person's desires, and gets them to go in the way of Hashem. Meaning the only way that a person can begin their tshuva is pure fear. Fear of bad things happening. It could be bad things in this world, like losing money, losing health, losing wife, losing kids, losing whatever you'd want. Or it's if you could relate to losing something in the next world. The point is, that fear is the only way to start tshuva. This is from who? Rabbi Nachman. Not from Yaron Uven. They didn't ask me before they wrote this. And it continues, you could see it yourself. The point is that today, there's a lot of confusion when you're ter- talking, taking these holy rabbi's Torah and you're perverting it in so many different ways it be- eventually becomes idolatry becomes something else and realistically most of those people they don't know what they said they don't learn anything you ask some of these people anything about parashat shavua anything about gemara anything they don't know anything there's no rebbe 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 they know they know things that are superficial the rebbe said this the rebbe said this and most of the time the rebbe didn't say anything of what they're saying so it's very important to know what's the difference between Tameh and Tao because if a person is 
taking his zealousness for his rabbi, and he loves his rabbi so much, too far, he could literally turn his mitzvah into a chilul Hashem. And that's a very, very difficult problem to have when we arrive at Shemaim after 120, to arrive with a tank full of chilul Hashem is a serious, serious problem. Now, the key that most have a tough time understanding is that Hashem judges us for every single thing. And here, the Chachamim used the Pasuk, in Gemara Bavakama, page 58, they used the Pasuk in Parashat Azinu, chapter 32, verse 4, The rock, meaning Hashem, perfect is His work, for all of His paths are justice. A God of faith without iniquity, righteous and fair is He. This pasuk is what the Chachamim use in multiple places as the source for why no one in their right mind should ever think that Hashem will let go of even a single sin. Smaller sin. Don't ever think that Hashem, oh, this one, I'll just let it go. Now, this is not to depress anyone or get anyone to have an anxiety attack. This is to clearly let us know what we're dealing with and to know that we have to do tshuva. No one is, has a free, uh, get-out-of-jail-free card. Everyone has to do tshuva for something. Something you may have done 20 years ago, something you may have done 20 minutes ago. The point is, all of us have work to do. And that's what Or Yisrael, Rabbi Yisrael Mishalant, explains to us in, in, in um, Or Yisrael. And he says, if you're alive, that means Hashem wants you to do tshuva. Yeah, but what do you mean? I'm a big rabbi. Exactly. You have to do tshuva. What do you mean? I just started. Exactly. You have to do tshuva. What do you mean? I'm a female. Exactly. You have to do tshuva. What do you mean? I'm a young kid. I just got bar mitzvah. Exactly. You have to do tshuva. What do you mean? I'm a non-Jew. Exactly. You have to do tshuva. If you're alive, you have to do tshuva. If you're alive, you have to do tshuva. If you didn't have to do tshuva, or you got to such a point where you can't do tshuva, Hashem sees the road, He sees this person is not going to do tshuva. Then, He transferred to a different department. But this is the important thing. This is the source. There's no, this is what Yaron Uven said. This is Gbara. This is our oral Torah. It's important to know because some of these things that we take into, if we take them into consideration, we realize that it's a big weight to carry without asking what's in the bag. What's in the bag? I need to know what's in the bag before, before I continue carrying it. Before I continue doing this, I have to, I have to understand what's in it. Is it cocaine I'm going to get arrested or is it fruits and vegetables? I need to ask myself, what's in the bag? Now, if a person follows the Hashem, follows what Hashem Barach and his holy rabbis said to do, then he can get to real emunah. Now, what does it mean to get to real emunah? People love to talk about emunah. And the Torah mentions emunah, but we can only get to emunah on a certain path. In our tefillah every day, 
we have a pasuk from Parashat B'Shalach. Where after Am Yisrael crossed the ocean, the Sea of Reeds, they saw the Egyptians drown, and they were amazed. And we read this in our tefillah, Vayar Yisrael et ayad ha-gdola asher asa Adonai b'Mitzrayim, Vayeru ha-am et Adonai, Vayaminu ba-Adonai, u-b-Moshe Avdo. Here this is a pasuk in a Torah, Parashat B'Shalach, chapter, uh, book of Exodus, Shemot, um, chapter 14, verse 31. It says, Israel saw the great hand that Hashem inflicted upon Egypt, and the people feared Hashem, and they had Emunah in Hashem, and in Moses his servant. That faith in Hashem and Moses his servant. So here, we see that this is not only an event that took place, because the Torah is not a history book, but it's also an instruction manual of how to get to Emunah. And after this, I'm going to tell you a story. It was worth not only coming, it was worth being born for. To hear the story. And then you guys go to sleep. Hashem Barach is telling you the following. Am Yisrael, that was Dora De'ah, that was a generation of knowledge that saw all the plagues that happened in Egypt. They saw the water turn to blood. They saw the frogs coming, size of a dinosaur and a little frog going in that stuff. All these crazy things that are technically against nature. Still had a problem with Emunah when they got to the Sea of Reeds, still had a suffix. Some of their neighbors had such a suffix, they stayed in Egypt and Hashem killed them. The ones that left, the best of them, still had some doubts. They had some doubts. But after they crossed the Sea of Reeds and Hashem split the ocean into 12, as the Rambam explains, each tribe in one tunnel, and they saw that all the Egyptians died and all the Jews survived and so on, then it says they saw, at that point, they saw the hand of Hashem, and how he inflicted Egypt. They saw that he inflicted Egypt and not the Jews. Meaning they saw this is miraculous. But miraculous to the point where we know it's not just nature, it's for us. It's, catered, it's custom catered for us. Custom designed for us. And then it says, and the people revered Hashem. They feared Hashem. And then they had Emunah and Hashem and Moses' servant. Why? He says, first the person needs to know who he's dealing with. Who's the hand that's spinning the globe? Who's the hand that's feeding you? Who's the hand that's worrying about whether you're going to have a wife or a husband, or children, or parnasah, or refuah or anything that you want, oxygen in your lungs? Who's the one that gives it to you? As soon as you realize who you're dealing with, a normal person naturally becomes scared. That's what it says. Once they saw the hand of Hashem, they feared Hashem. Why? He's the one that's doing all this? It's not, it's not just nature. It's not happenstance. It's not a coincidence. It's not a tsunami. It's not Paro. It's not Moshe. It's Hashem. Everybody became scared. And after become scared, what it says? And they had Emunah and Hashem. Only after they had Yirat Shamaim. Then we can start talking about Emunah. After we have Emunah and Hashem, then we have Emunah and Moshe Rabbeinu. Meaning, 
after I have I paid attention to who's running the world then I realized Hashem I'm, I'm scared but that's a good thing that's a good fear why because I know who I'm dealing with now I can I have emuna that this same hand that feeds me it's gonna feed me tomorrow too why not if he fed me today why is it why should I worry about tomorrow and that's what Rabbi Elizabeth Ben Holkonos and Gemara Masechet says a person that has food today but ask what will I eat tomorrow that's a person with a small emuna. small emuna. he doesn't have really emuna. why if you had today why are you worrying about tomorrow if you understood that the food that you got today came from the same hand came from the same Hashem why are you worrying about tomorrow so Rabbi Noam Elimelech Mijinsk said a pirush on the Pasuk in Parashat Behar, chapter 25, verse 20. Commentary. He says a person that has emunah, has real emunah in Hashem, doesn't question Hashem. Doesn't question Hashem. Doesn't question where's the blessing going to come from. What will I eat tomorrow? What will my retirement look like? What will this? He doesn't question Hashem. He goes, okay, this is Ratzon Hashem. Okay, that's what's going to happen. Yeah, but you have a problem. That's Ratzon Hashem. That's the will of Hashem. The problem is what Hashem wants. There's a reason for it. A person that has full emunah, real emunah, not emunah that you have a sticker on your bumper sticker. You don't have a sticker on... It's not that. Emunah, you really have emunah. He doesn't question Hashem. Don't question Hashem. Why? He knows everything is from Hashem. The good, the bad, whatever it is, all from Hashem. But as soon as a person has this, got to such a level, he say, Bauch Hashem, Bauch Hashem, Bezat Hashem, Bezat Hashem, he's constantly always talking about Hashem. But then Hashem gives him a test. All of a sudden, there's no food in the fridge. All of a sudden, there's no money in the bank. All of a sudden, the IRS sees his account. All of a sudden, there's a problem. And he doesn't say the same, Bauch Hashem. He says different. He says, why did you do this to me, Hashem? Instead of Baruch Hashem, it's why Hashem. How many times do we ask just today, why Hashem? Today, not just the last week, not just our lifetime, just today, I'm why Hashem, why, why, why? We always ask, why Hashem? Habibi Melech says, as soon as he asks why Hashem, he ruins his bracha. The bracha that he got to, the high level that he got to with Emunah and Hashem was giving it to him, giving it to it to him, and finally he gave him the test and he failed it. Not by he failed it by saying, I'm going to go worship an idol. I'm going to become a Christian. No. He simply asked this tiny question. Why is Hashem doing this to me? He ruined his bracha. Doesn't mean that he ruined his rasha. Just means that the high level of bracha, of blessing that he had, you have to start again. We fell down. We have to rebuild again. And that's where he has to take on a big mitzvah at that point to do tshuva. Now, it says, Tamim Tiyeim Hashem. It says you have to be complete with Hashem. You have to be simple with Hashem. The simpler you are with Hashem, the better your life is going to be. Now, part of what Be'ezrat Hashem does, our organization, it's not just go give lectures for free, give out CDs, give out a Shayatzal, buy you guys lunch once in a while. Baruch Hashem has a lot of other chasadim that are behind the scenes. 
Now, the only reason I'm telling you this story is for toilet. So to, to, we learn something from him. And also because it's a mitzvah to sanctify Hashem's name. And apparently it only happened because we have this Mishnah. Because I don't really, I can't justify any other reason. Not that I know anything, but apparently this is what it means. You guys have some schuyot, so Hashem wanted to give me a personal lesson just for you. So, one of the upsides of doing Kiruv and speaking to people publicly and so on is you get to meet a lot of people. Different places around the world. I have some people from Australia to the United States, from Amash, from corner to corner. And people send you letters and emails and text messages and pictures and so on of Mamash, their chuva stories. Sometimes they were always religious, but now they became better. Sometimes they were completely atheist and they became religious. But you have wonderful stories that you see. This is the end, this is the, the fuel that keeps you going because the vast majority of the job is not that. The vast majority of the job is dealing with problems. But problems, like problems that you don't even want your enemies to have. All types of problems. Because one of the things when you speak publicly, people reach out to you, and for the most part, people don't just tell you good news. They tell you bad news. This happened, that happened. Anyone that's a part of our Tehillim group, almost every other day we have another person added to the list that we're praying for that has Shem Achim, what kind of disease? Cancer, this, that, Shem Achim, people are dying, drowning, all types of horrible things that are happening to Am Yisrael every day. We have a whole group of people that read the, the entire Sefer Tehilim on a regular basis for if washing them out of strangers. Why? Because that's what you're supposed to do. So you hear a lot of bad news. A lot of bad news. And you try to pray for people. You try to help people. Once in a while, Hashem gives you a mitzvah that's easy. Do a prayer. Read Tehillim for some stranger. Okay, so you read Tehillim. You took Tehillim. You read Tehillim for 30 seconds, 2 minutes, 3 minutes. You did a mitzvah. It's an easy mitzvah. If you know the person, it's even easier. Sometimes He gives you a harder mitzvah. Mitzvah that's difficult for you. Mitzvah that hurts you a little bit. For most people today, it's money. People are willing to do anything for money. There's one guy I know... He asked me about wasting seed. I told him, according to the Arizal, you have to fast 84 times every time you wasted seed. And if you're an average male in the world today, you did it more than once in your life. He said, okay, fine, I'd rather fast 84 times than give the... Because the other way to do tshuva is to give 84 meals as tzedakah for each time. Meaning, if let's say an average meal costs, I don't know, $5, means you have to give $420 every time you wasted seed. Well, you can't give it all once. You give it once a month, once a week. Depends on your finances. The point is, no, this is outside of tzedakah. This is pure tshuva for wasting seed. But the point... Not when you're sleeping. When you're sleeping at night, it's not considered a fast. Sleeping during the day. But the point is, some people love their money so much, the guy told me that he'd rather fast 84 times for the rest of his life then give money. He has the money. He just doesn't want to give it. He loves his money so much, he'd rather keep the money and fast the rest of his life and suffer. Such people, some people are sick. But anyway, part of the schut that we have, part of the merit that we have is sometimes people have money issues and they come, they ask for help and if we can help, we help. We're not Rockefeller. We don't have millions. We're not the Red Cross or uh, one of these billion-dollar organizations. But if I have a few dollars to give somebody, I don't care. It doesn't make a difference to my life. 
if I can help somebody, Baruch Hashem, it's good. But something happened in the last 24 hours to show how what Rabbi Eli Melech says is not only true, it's valid today. Yesterday, somebody came to me and told me they have an issue, serious problems, a lot of debt, a lot of this, a lot of that. Now, I'm not, I'm not Social Security office. Okay, you have debt. Okay, you're paid over time. Sometimes you ask questions. Why do you have debt? Why do you have a gambling problem? You have this problem. You have that problem. And then also you start asking yourself, oh, can I even help this person? It's not like we have that much. Okay, well, if I give him 100 bucks, is it really going to help him? Give him $1,000, is it really going to help him? Like, what kind of problem does he have? Can I even help this person? Because if a person has a million dollars in debt, me giving him 50 bucks is not going to help him. It's better if I give him advice. So the point is you have to decide whether you can help a person or not. And see what they're on. Sometimes you have to ask questions. So anyway, an opportunity came yesterday. And I asked questions, and there was a, uh, I wanted to help, but it was difficult. It was, a, it was a substantial amount of money. And I started thinking, do we even have the money? How can we afford it? We're not going to be able to do this. If we use the money for this, then we can't use it for this. You start doing the accounting in your head. Yes, he needs help. Yes, she needs help. Whatever the person, they need help, I understand. But maybe I'm not the person to help them. There's plenty of other organizations. There's plenty of other people that have a lot of money. You know, it's not like uh, you start doing the accounting. And you ask questions. You ask yourself questions. You ask Hashem questions. You ask questions. Now all this is happening maybe in a few minutes, but the point is it seems like a lifetime at the time. Anyway, decide to help. And you do what you can. Fine. Today, while we were uh, studying with my Rav, do studying on Skype, heard a story. Something came to him, Shem This religious woman is going to a kapat of a note that I don't think any of us can handle. Her evil, fake husband left her, took all the money. left her for dead pretty much with her daughter and she's gone to such level of poverty that there's no food to eat there's nothing literally nothing we're not you know when people say in america i don't have even eat you know, I'm, I'm starving that just means you haven't eaten in two hours no food to eat no hope in sight no one that she knows that can help her because everyone she knows is also struggling to such an extent that she's putting body parts up for sale so she can feed her daughter. She's a religious woman. She's not going to put a body for sale like some of these putzot in the world. It's a Kodesh Kodeshim, this woman. But what are you going to do? You have to eat. And you see your little daughter starving. What are you going to do? I, saw, I heard this story. I wanted to die. As I'm hearing this story, I cared less about the rest of the details. I cared less about if we have money in the bank. I cared less about whether we could afford it. I cared less about who, what. I didn't even care what her name was. That Abat Israel is going to get to such level of poverty, Hashem Yirachem, that she's thinking about selling a body part so she can get food for her little kid. 
I'm thinking to myself, this is, this is insane. Unless I start, press, start, press by, just send money. When we told her this, she's like, why would anybody send me money? I didn't call to ask for money. I just, maybe somebody could help me get a place to stay, this, that. Like, mama, it's like, she's so innocent, so tamima. She didn't understand. What do you want? Why are you helping? I don't know you. I didn't want to talk to her. Like, I just, I don't need to talk to her. She didn't understand why is there, so she started crying hysterically that there's actually somebody that cares in the world, but the point I'm trying to tell, why am I telling you this story? The first time that I did, the first time when I had an opportunity to do a mitzvah, I asked a lot of questions. I asked a lot of questions. Oh, Hashem, we did the mitzvah. Good. Good job. You have a mitzvah. Somewhere in the account is a mitzvah. Good job. Bezot Hashem organization had a mitzvah. Second time, there was no question. Second time was purely considering, but Israel. I didn't think about, do I have money? I didn't think about how much money. I didn't think about anything. I thought, there's Hashem. There's his daughter somewhere, and somehow her story arrived at my desk. That's all that's important. And we reacted. And literally, within 30 seconds of me pressing the send button, the send button, I said press the send button, within 30 seconds, the same exact amount of money arrived in our account plus $1. Mik di mani ve'ashalem Hashem says, who did a mitzvah before me? Who did me a favor before I did for him? When? You ask questions, you ruin the bracha. You ask questions, who, what, when, can I afford it, can I do it, can I this, how can I do this, how, when I can I do it. You start asking, oh, you start doing the accounting of Shemaim. There's no bracha. You do Ratzon Hashem, you do the will of Hashem, there's always bracha. This is live, this happened today, 24 hours, only reason, I'm never going to tell you such a story if it happened after the fact, because it makes me look like I'm something special. The reality is, this is for learning purposes. This is actually almost the story coming to life. Now, just like this, all of these negative things we talked about for the first hour and a half, two hours, about how Hashem judges the, the, the world harshly if necessary, He also gives us blessings even sometimes we don't deserve it. He's looking to give us blessings. He's looking to give us good. Just give Him a reason. Give Him a reason. Stop asking so many questions that are not relevant. Ask something that's relevant. How do you know if it's relevant or not? It's relevant if it's going to make you more religious. It's relevant if it's going to make you a better servant of Hashem. That's relevant. If it's just a general question, just to know, when did we start officially reading Parashat Shavua? Yeah, it's a good question. But if your whole life is dependent on when we started reading Parashat Javua, that means you're really looking for a way out. If you're asking a lot of irrelevant questions, and that everything is, I'm only going to start doing this when I know all the answers, then Hashem is going to say, okay, I'll give you the answers for a, a private lesson. Come. the prophet Jeremiah, who, to the prophet Yov, who came before me and did a mitzvah, did, uh, did a favor for me. And I'll pay him back right now. Once in a while, you get lucky. You do a mitzvah 30 seconds before he paid you back. 